Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what does a future of emulated minds look like? Today we are joined by guest Robin Hansen, an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. He's got a new book, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth, and that book is coming out June 1st. We've referenced Robin's ideas numerous times on this show, and it's great to finally have him on the podcast. Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to meet you, Ted and John. We are longtime readers of Robin's blog, Overcoming Bias, which if uh, listeners are not familiar with it, you should check it out. It is a consistently challenging and interesting place to read about future topics and economics topics. But the main focus today is going to be your new book, the Age new book, of M. Right. Yeah. Robin, why don't you, you wrote the book. Why don't you tell us uh, in, in a simple way, what's the book about? What's the concept? So one of the most dramatic possibilities for big changes in the future that people have talked about for a while is robots as smart as people. I decided to write a book on the scenario that we reach robots as smart as people via brain emulation first. That is, the first kind of robot as smart as people takes a particular human brain and scans it in fine spatial and chemical detail and then makes a computer model of that particular person's brain. And such a computer model would have the same behavior as the original in the same environment. So you could talk to it, it would talk back. Uh, You might ask to do jobs and it might do them. And if this sort of an emulation was cheaper than a human, everything changes. Now you've taken that assumption that we have the ability to emulate human brains inside a computer and, and that's a very specific set of assumptions. And then you've actually described in very great detail what that world looks like and the social implications So given that your predictions are so specific, I mean, what confidence do you have in them? So my predictions are all conditional predictions. So we can talk in a bit about how likely my assumptions are. My key assumptions are that brain emulation is the first kind of human-level artificial intelligence that we have. Then, given that that's the key assumption, I also make some simplifying assumptions. I'm basically applying theory. I'm a theorist. And in general, in theory, we make simplifying assumptions as necessary to get concrete conclusions. And then I'm producing a sort of prototype, a central scenario based on these assumptions. So the odds that my very specific scenario ends up being exactly the things that happens is almost infinitesimal. (laughs) So I'm not trying to claim that this very specific scenario is exactly what happens. But I would claim that something close to this is plausible. That is, my scenario has many dozens of features in its description. I'd say each feature is more likely than not to be a part of the scenario, and that there's at least a one-third chance that my whole scenario is informative and useful in thinking about the actual thing that would happen given these assumptions. So how soon are we talking about this future occurring, right? You're saying that we we get to emulated brains, right? We've got these near-perfect copies of humans running inside of a computer. You know, how soon would we be able to pull this off, do you think? So brain emulations require three key technologies, and none of them is ready yet. But they're all on track to be ready within a century. So we need enough cheap, fast, parallel computers. We need fine enough resolution scans of particular brains. And then we need good enough models of all of the brain cell types in the brain. And we have good enough models of a couple types of brain cells. We have actually pretty good scans of 
brains already and computers with Moore's law, et cetera, are on track within a few decades or so to be uh, good enough there. So roughly sometime in the next century seems a good guess for when brain emulations would be feasible. Now, the key part of the scenario I'm talking about is that brain emulations are the first kind of artificial intelligence to be feasible. There are other competing approaches. One obvious competing approach is doing what we've been doing for the last 70 years. So we've been slowly accumulating better software of all sorts. Some of that software is called artificial intelligence software, but that label may not be especially important. The key point is that slowly computers are getting better. The trends on that, however, look like it'll take several centuries before that sort of approach reaches human-level abilities. So if that's true, then brain emulations seem to be on track to get there first. Right. So just to sum up, we're assuming in this book that uh, emulated brains will beat AGI to the ability to get human-level intelligence out of a computing system and that they'll arrive maybe within a century, or that seems like a plausible assumption. And also that they are going to be pretty cheap to manufacture. Uh, And that's based on the idea that computer technology is getting cheaper over time. Is that right? Right. So that's one of the key technologies is that computers be cheap enough. Of course, we have computers today. So even if we had the other technologies in principle, we could create a brain emulation, but it might cost a trillion dollars, and that just won't do. Right. Well, that you might do one for a research project, but it's not until you can make many of them for cheap prices, the way we make uh, cell phones or something now, that they would be you know, economically profitable to the point where you would choose them over humans for doing jobs, right? Right. And if, if they are cost twice as much as a, a human to rent, i.e. in their wages, then they'll be just a curiosity. But as soon as they're twice as cheap as a human, uh, then everything changes. Right. And I I think that term rent might be a little bit confusing. So I want to just, for clarity's sake, what we mean is to manufacture and purchase and run one of these things would be less money than to pay wages to a worker, right? That's what we mean when you say rent one. Okay. So that's sort of where your book starts, right? Is with this assumption that we're mass producing these perfect substitutes for humans in the workplace. And that there's actually a pretty large population explosion of these emulated minds at that point, right? Absolutely. So Today, we can really make things in factories pretty fast. So if we could make everything that the economy needed in factories, we could actually double the economy uh, every few months or even faster. The reason it takes 15 years to double the economy today is that we don't double humans that fast. And humans are a key element of the economy. But once we don't need humans, we can make everything we need in factories. Then the economy can grow much, much faster. Right. Or another way to think about that is that once the humans become software to a large extent, then the kind of things we expect of software, such as the easy reproducibility of it, starts to apply to, to humans or to you know thinking things. I guess they're not humans, they're emulated brains. Actually, now, because you mentioned something about uh, humans not being needed anymore. So, so maybe now <laughs> is the place to jump in and sort of inform our listeners that you know if you go out and you pick up Robin's book, you're going to read about a future that may not sound that great to you, right? I mean, I think it's pretty easy to read your book and be kind of upset by what you're describing because this is a future where, you know, humans are pretty much completely sidelined and we'll get to this more in detail later, but the emulated minds are forced to work long hours for these near subsistence wages and so on. What do you want to say to someone who who reads your work and kind of objects to it on moral grounds? Well, first, I think my job is primarily just to tell you what this next era is likely to be like. That is, what the path of least resistance would take us to. That's a daunting task, and it's the first task 
that needs to be done before any other sort of analysis of what you'd want to do to change it or whether you even like it. You can't really evaluate it or change it to be more useful unless you have the foggiest idea of what it's supposed to be like. So I took in my task this book to just be straightforwardly analytic and just describe this world. If you think about it, you should have expected the next great era after ours to be as different from our era as ours was from the farming era or the forager eras that came before that. And they were really quite different from us and from each other. People had very different styles of work, very different attitudes to key things. And if they were to see our world, they might be very impressed with some things and really object to other things. So you should have expected that the next era after ours would be a mixture like that, hard to classify as a heaven or a hell, having elements of both, and being hard to decide what you thought of it. And that is what the book I've described is like. So my main caution is take it slow and easy. Don't jump to immediate conclusions. <laughs> Try to get into this world and see what it's like before you decide whether you love or hate it and then what you might want to do to improve it. Right. As I was reading the book, I definitely found my own mind revolting to some degree against uh, some of the things in it, not because I thought they were illogical or implausible necessarily, but because they seemed so different to my own values and preferences. But the framing that you just gave, which is in the book, uh, would help me to think about it because I would try to imagine a theoretical Age of Machines book like published in, uh, you know, 17-something England. Um, then, you know, well, if even you, 1700, England is, is well into the transition, but if you sure. would have gone back to 1000 AD England or something like that, told them that, you know, we had betrayed all of their deepest... Uh, <laughs> values in terms of religion and patriotism and, and <laughs> holding true to your family and things like that. Uh, we've really rejected a lot of those things that they held dear. Yeah. A, a couple of the things too, is that you mentioned that you, you didn't paint either a heaven or a hell, right? And that's a reference, I think, to kind of how you see a lot of other works of futurism, right? I mean, it's a lot of futurism is kind of advocacy of, for some kind of future, right? Or it's a warning. Of yeah. Or saying, you know, this is what we don't want to do. And, right. and so I think it's, we want to be really clear about the fact that, you know, you're not advocating for the future you're describing. You're not necessarily endorsing it. You're just saying this is one place we get to given certain assumptions. Right. It, it's a long held truism that people often use the future as a way to talk indirectly about the present. <laughs> so uh, they take some current trend and they extend it and exaggerate it. And then that's a way to criticize or celebrate some current trend. And it's a way really to talk about today. Uh, and there's a sense in which most people don't really care that much about the real long-term future, but they do care about using the future as a metaphor for today and also as a place to set exotic fantasy stories. So my book is in some sense a test of whether you actually care about a real future because uh, a real future should not be very easy to see as a morality tale about the present, and nor is it really a great place to set fantasy stories. I mean, it's a fantastic place, but fantasy stories actually want more than just a fantastic place to be a setting. Well, I don't know if I agree with you about the second thing that you're saying, because I find this world to be, maybe because I'm a fan of science fiction and I'm kind of bored of the ways that a lot of science fiction is very similar because of the desire to uh, set things in morally clear worlds of the future. I find your world actually to be a pretty interesting, fantastical setting, precisely because it feels sort of unexplored and new, and it brings up a lot of interesting things, which hopefully we'll get to in this, in this episode. Let's get more into some of the common objections maybe to the actual future that you're predicting, right? So we're talking about uh, the arrival of large numbers of emulated minds all at once, right? 
So once we have that technology to to mass produce perfect substitutes for humans, uh, you know, a lot of people might assume that you know even bigger changes are just going to occur shortly after, right? So right, uh, you know, we could take uh, a, a team of our you know best AI researchers, you know, copy the people on that team a thousand times, and then run those people at a thousand times the speed of a human, and the expectation being that they would then quickly invent you know the next level of AI. And that the M era that you're describing, right, would be just sort of a small blip in the historical timeline, right? What's your answer to that kind of objection? Well, our era, the industrial era, is a small blip in history. <laughs> uh, even the farming era that came before it that lasted 7,000 years is a blip in history. Uh, at either of those previous growth rates, uh, they couldn't possibly last even a million years, uh, and which is a tiny time on a cosmological timescale. Uh, and so... Uh, any of these eras is a tiny times of the uh, of history. Uh, nevertheless, uh, each of them is important because a lot of growth happens be within them. So, within the last few eras, the economy has doubled, say, between seven and fifteen times. And so, uh, this next era is plausibly an era wherein the economy would double between seven and fifteen times. And if the economy doubles every month, that's really only a year or two. So. In objective times, it's even shorter, of course, than the previous eras because growth is faster. But still, doubling seven or 15 times is a lot of doubling. And so uh, the society will change a lot over that time. And if you want to think about what things are going to be like after that, you really should think about what it's going to be like during this era to have the foggiest idea of what to think about next. Also, to the emulations, it lasts a lot longer. So I estimate the typical emulation runs at roughly a thousand times human speed. So even if it's only a year or two for humans, it's a few millennia for the emulations. Right. So the subjective time that these M's would experience may be more on the scale that the other eras we're discussing, like the forager and farming eras lasted. Even if the objective from us humans watching the progress bar move from left to right on the uh, computer screen sort of, uh, you know, perspective, it might be two minutes or two years or right. something like so that. So th this is one of the reasons why uh, humans don't really change much during this era. So there's not that much activity in humans. So uh, just to quickly summarize, during this era, which may only last a year or two, all of a sudden humans basically lose all of their ability to earn wages. And then all of their investments very quickly double as fast as the economy, say every month or faster. So humans suddenly lose all their money uh, in terms of wages and then all of a sudden get rich if they have assets like stock, real estate, uh, patents, things like that. But the culture of humans really can't change very much over two years. And so uh, humans are frozen in culture for that time. But for the emulations, who, for whom this may be thousands of years, their culture can change enormously. So just to, I was going to get to this later, but since you brought it up, it sounds like then, you know, as a human preparing for such a future, if it comes, uh, <laughs> the clear goal then is to have some of these assets that you're talking Buy about. Buy stock and M's basically, right? <laughs> right. That's the uh, investment well, advice. Well, just own any sort of broad assets uh, in, you know, index fund. Uh, uh -huh. you, you might not want to make bets about which particular things would pay off well in an M world. Uh, just do a lot. Although if there are insurance products, you might want to buy them. Just money that pays off if an M world happens is an even more effective way to buy insurance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you said it's one to two years, you know, from the perspective of humans, right? 
did you uh, did you give an exact number like if you're an m in this world right now and that it's important to stress that your book is mostly from the perspective of the m's right because they're sort of the dominant species or species on the planet at that point is it millennia for them or what's that what's that time scale for them well again the typical emulation will be roughly a thousand times human speed but a key thing to know about the emulation world is they vary enormously in speed and that creates a huge divergence within their world so they are as it creates a cultural fragmentation of the emulations by speed so emulations can run twice as fast if they pay twice as much. So they have the same cost per subjective minute, but they can either run that minute uh, spread out over a long time or over, over a short time. How fast any one emulation would actually run would be mainly determined by how fast they need to run to do their job well. So if they, say, control a super tanker, they can run really slow because you can't turn a super taper very fast. But if they run a nanofactory, maybe they need to run really fast in order to keep track of it. If they interact with humans, they need to be as slow as humans. If they are bosses, it turns out they need to be even faster than the subordinates. And so uh, they fragment by speed. And in fact, uh, this range over which paying twice as much makes them run twice as fast probably goes up to a million times faster than humans and down to a billion times slower than humans. That's just a tremendous amount of variation. And you'd think that it would also have social implications for them, right? Because... uh... Sure. You probably can only interact pretty meaningfully with M's who are near your speed, I would think. Right. So if they do interact with somebody at another speed, probably the usual way is that the slow one temporarily speeds up. <laughs> so, so if you have a meeting with your boss, you go into the boss's office, and uh, it was an hour in the office, but you walk out a few seconds later. And you, you paid a little more for that too, right? <laughs> right, right. But, uh, and so if you want to visit strange cultures, you probably go visit places at other speeds, but it's a lot easier to visit fast places than slow places. So in fact, actually visiting a slow pace is ridiculously expensive in terms of the opportunity cost of your time. Right. So you might visit a simulation of a slow place that's actually fast. <laughs> that's hard to wrap your head around. <laughs> I, want, I want to go back to a pre... I mean, you started talking about what about if there was research really fast and we didn't get to that point. So uh, let's just go back to that point. Sure. Go ahead and address that. So in our world, we uh, innovate. That's the main way that we grow. That's how the economy doubles every 15 years. And Mm -hmm. one of the contributions to innovation is, of course, uh, research and development, hiring people to do research. Um, That's important, and we may not do enough of it. But even so, it's not obvious that we do enormously not enough of it. So uh, even today, countries that spend more on research and development don't actually grow faster. And uh, in fields, if we... that. If we pay more for research, we don't actually get proportionally more research done. <laughs> uh, hmm. So uh, in agriculture research, for example, it seems to be roughly square root. If you have uh, 100 t- if you spend 100 times as much on research, maybe you get 10 times as much progress. So maybe we are not terribly far off from the right amount of research. Uh, hmm. So research progress roughly scales with uh, the growth rate of the economy. Uh, If the economy doubles every 15 years, uh, that's a scale in which we're sort of getting a lot of new insight. That's the only way we can double the economy. Uh, If the enemy economy grows faster, then uh, research will, of course, happen faster, but probably on the same scale of of the same amount of progress per doubling of the economy. In fact, because the M economy can grow just by adding more machines without innovation, it's probably even less. Maybe we'll have the same amount of growth and technical innovation when the M economy grows by a factor of four as we would if our economy grew by a factor of two. 
So that means that... Um, because population growth, just to be clear, is making right. the difference? Right. That makes sense. Exactly. Okay. Got it. So uh, at the point when the emulation economy shows up, uh, if we are still plausibly far away from human-level artificial intelligence, then of course the rate of progress will speed up, but it'll probably speed up like the M economy speeds up. So that means if there were still many doublings to go before the economy would have reached human-level economy intelligence, there'll still be many doublings to go before the M economy reaches human-level artificial intelligence in its software. So that means there's plausibly a long era that we can talk about uh, of the M era without having uh, really smart software, where the main way to get uh, good jobs done is to have the emulations be run. Right. And again, that's a subjectively long period of time for the M. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so my, my other question was in reference to the fact that can't we improve upon the human brain in other ways other than running it faster once it's inside a computer? Sure. So now, again, uh, I'm doing a theoretical exercise, and one of the things we theorists do is to make simplifying assumptions. So the obvious simplifying assumptions that I made initially in the book is that the brains don't improve. Uh, that is, all you can really do is to take an emulation and turn it on, turn it off, uh, erase it, make a copy, run it fast, run it slow, uh, but that's about it. And that is plausibly what would happen at first because the brain is famously complicated at spaghetti code, and uh, often with spaghetti code, the main thing you can do is just run it. It's hard to modify. Now, over time, probably it would become possible to modify the code but it's not actually clear that that makes a lot of difference. So I discuss it uh, near the end of the book in, in a section called Alternatives. And there are a limited number of changes that do seem plausible. Uh, the most obvious change is to just greatly reduce the parts of the brain that are associated with sound processing and sight processing. Mm. Uh, that takes a big chunk of our brain. And for most jobs, we don't actually need the degree of, of sophistication of those modules that uh, our brains actually have. Now, when we were hunting in the wild, we needed really high levels of those things. But mm. for doing most other jobs, we don't. So uh, one way to save a factor of two or, or maybe even three on uh, brain emulation uh, costs is to just throw out most of that stuff to make much simpler, lower resolution versions of sound processing and sight processing for the emulations. Hmm. Now, so that saves on costs. It's a, it's a plausible prediction, but it hardly changes the emulation world at all. It means that mostly creatures like that would not see or hear as precisely as we do, but they would still basically experience the same world as we, we do. It might be a bit, bit cheaper to run them. Exactly. So there are parts of the brain, like the cerebellum, that seem to have a very regular structure. And it is plausible that we could fi find a way to just expand that structure, that is, copy the same structure and just make it bigger. Right. And plausibly, that would make uh, those brains smarter. That is, they might be able to sort of remember more things more precisely, uh, hold in their head more concepts, maybe notice more precise patterns more easily. Uh, those would be plausible features of just expanding that section of the brain. Mm -hmm. But again, that hardly makes any difference to the rest of the scenario in my book. So uh, my book is basically taking in an entire civilization and trying to describe as many parts as I can. And that means for each part of the civilization I describe, I don't go into much detail. I take just basically the simplest things that we know about that part and just make the most straightforward projections I can. And so um, most of the features of our world actually don't depend that much on, say, uh, how smart we are or the degree of uh, precision in our sight and sound. These are really pretty small details when you talk about a whole civilization. It's kind of a black box model that you're using then, right? You're assuming that nobody can you know, make massive changes. I think you did mention in the book that you could do some kind of tweaks um, sort of similar to, to 
drugs maybe, you know, where you could maybe get a little bit of productivity gains out of say like increased focus or, you know, putting a brain into increased a, relaxation. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Is that, but you're, but you're right. saying that the gains from that wouldn't be huge. Yeah, you'd run out of those quickly. I mean, you know, as with most pieces of software, you'll have a few knobs you can turn without breaking it and you'll turn those knobs. Uh, but you run out of things you can do there again. I honestly, I do think uh, people, especially smart people just get way too obsessed with intelligence <laughs> as this overwhelming parameter that determines everything. And it's really relatively minor when you look at uh, the fundamentals of a civilization and all the things that are going on. So most likely, emulations will, in fact, be much smarter than the typical human, but mainly because we'll select the few hundred best emulations out of the seven or so billion humans at the time. Right. So they'll be within the typical range of humanity, though, you're suggesting, right? Right, but they will be at the level of a billionaire, head of state, Olympic gold medalist, Nobel Prize winner. (laughs) They will be that level. The typical emulation will be at the peak of the sorts of people we celebrate in our world. Right. Okay. So the the M's are made up of the, the best we have to offer. They're sort of or, a group of valedictorians or something like that. If you or whatever stand in for intelligence you find pleasing, but uh, but they're not they're not wildly outside the human range of abilities. They're more at the top end of the human range of of cognitive abilities. Well, of course, if you can run a thousand times faster than a human, uh, then you, <laughs> you mean they're not really that much better uh, when you factor in that speed difference. But of course, they could do the same sort of things we do much faster. Uh, and then uh, as you imagine the society through the book, I think there's a there's a trend that goes through it that is just um, like a reversal of a lot of trends that we see now in w- wealthy nations Obviously, the most important one is the demographic change. So the long-time trend that we've been seeing in wealthy nations is that as people get richer and get more control over their life, they tend to have fewer children, lower birth rates. And obviously, we're talking about a a world in which, because of copying, uh, these M's have extremely high population growth. So that would be a big reversal, right? So even more dramatic is just that wealth per person falls. So even mm. if we didn't have the demographic transition, mm. even if we had maintained a sort of higher levels of fertility that our ancestors have, still our economy has been growing fast enough that the wealth per person would have been rising. Uh, and so we've gotten very used to living in a world where the wealth and income per person has been rising. So we each can work, every generation can work less and have more things and, and feel less threatened by disease and wars and all sorts of things because we're all getting rich. And this is a world that is not getting rich per person. The entire world collectively is getting rich in the sense that it's becoming much larger and more capable, but individuals are not getting rich typically. Because we're creating so very many individuals in the form of these software emulated brains. Right. So I'd say our era is what I'd call a dream time. It's an unusual exception, but pretty much all humans before 200 years ago lived at near subsistence level. Pretty much all animals have ever lived at near subsistence level. It's an unusual scenario we're in today. Many people and futurists have sort of thought that this is a fundamental new trend that will last forever, and it's not. It's an exception. It doesn't need to last forever. Uh, Plausibly, the future will go back to the way things have been. That is, becoming rich and more capable overall collectively, but still individuals are moved back toward near subsistence level. Well, and even now, don't we still have a significant population in the world that's... uh... We do. We do. The the bottom billion by a famous title. Did you say bottom billion? Yeah, Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the six, you know, what's about a seventh of the world's population is still living that way. So, you know, we have, uh, I think maybe we have a little bit of a bias there because we're all in the elite group that gets to 
experience these expanding living standards uh, generation after generation. We don't realize that that's not everyone's experience. It's a strong enough bias in a sense that many people basically think that no lives have been worth living until people got near their wealth levels. They they sort of (laughs) think that the typical human life in history was a hell. And uh, they they would rather humanity goes extinct than to uh, go back to that hell that they uh, just couldn't imagine ever tolerating, uh, which seems to me really parochial of them. Yeah, I I expect I would have fared poorly in that earlier time, like... (laughs) that I'm not well adapted for it, but I definitely don't view it as a hell. So that's really interesting. Well, and of course, the people, these emulated minds, even though they might be making, you know, near subsistence level uh, wages, they have fabulous technology that we don't have, right? Sure. So maybe we should talk about the fact that the vast majority of these M's are living in virtual reality. Right. And what are their living standards like? Yeah. To give someone a spectacularly beautiful, uh, stunning, uh, comfortable virtual reality costs very little relative to just running their brain in the first place. So uh, they might as well. That would make the workers more productive. Now, you don't want to make it so beautiful and stunning that it distracts the workers from their jobs (laughs) because they do need to work most of the time. So it's comfortable and beautiful, but in the background. Now, uh, they don't ever need to feel hunger or pain, uh, disease, grime. Their bodies can always be beautiful. This is their usual life. And they are really good at their jobs, and they're more like workaholics. So many of you probably know workaholics today who are relatively rich, but because they're workaholics, they don't pay so much attention to their wealth, and they're mostly focused on doing their job. That's what emulations are like. Really good at their jobs, really focused on it, but living a quite comfortable life. And of course, humans' uh, minds have long needed breaks in order to be productive, so they wouldn't be working the emulation minds 24-7. Not only would they need to sleep, but they would need to take breaks, perhaps once an hour, lunch break, uh, evening break, weekends, uh, vacations. All of those things really are required for humans to be productive, and so emulations will do that as well. Right, and uh, just to be clear there, because I think that might be a little confusing, when we say that the M's will be like uh, workaholics, that's because we'd select for them, right? We would we would scan workaholics. Yes, of course. <laughs> but it's not like we're we're changing their brains necessarily. We're just picking the people in the world who are the most productive and they tend right. to be like that. So like if you pick the, I don't know, 10% of people who are most, you know, motivated by, by getting their work done and, and among them, you choose your emulation uh, originals, then you're very likely to have a population of M's that, uh, that enjoy working. Right. Although uh, today people often enjoy their jobs uh, when they're really good at them because of the relative status they get, because they're better than other people. Right, so. and that would be harder for the M's to, uh, we'd have to filter for that somehow, because that would be harder right. for the M's to achieve, right? Because they were so easily copied, it would be hard to... Right. So they'll have to enjoy their jobs when they're not better than everybody else. Right. Uh, they're the same on average, but they're still really good. Right, but then you just find the people that don't care so much about that, and again, those are the people you scan, right? Which, right. an interesting, I think, major feature of this world is... While there's a huge population of these emulated minds, the actual number of source humans that they're derived from is potentially rather small, right? I mean, how many right. do you think there would be? So I'm, my best guess is a few hundred, but it could go down to a few dozen or even less. Uh, it's not entirely clear. Uh, they, they could diverge. So even if we uh, take a copy of George, uh, we might take a copy of George when he's five years old and then each of these maybe billion copies of George would be trained in different ways uh, for different professions in different geographic regions. And so they could become substantially different, although they'll all have sort of an essential George personality. I thought in the book that you assumed that we would be mostly starting with adult brains because the development 
process is so sort of strange. Well, and initially, at the very beginning, when mm-hmm. you finally spent your billions of dollars to make an M feasible, you're going to want to scan people who are immediately uh, useful. Right. So you want to take the best lawyer, the best software engineer, the best civil engineer, whatever it is, uh, and immediately scan those people and make them uh, copies and sell them. But as soon as the M world starts to get big and, and the kind of skills and that you need diverge there from in the human world, it's no longer going to make so much sense to take the people who are best in the human world. You will want to take younger humans who can now be retrained and to adapt to the new changing uh, job skills and conditions. And it's also a problem because the very first emulations will probably also be destructive scans. Mm. And if, if uh, the switch to the demand for younger uh, human scans happens before we learn to efficiently do non-destructive scans, then what you're likely to have is the M economy uh, going around people and offering them millions or even billions to scan, say, their young children destructively in order to make <laughs> them uh, workers in the new M world. That's quite a dark scenario. See, like that right there strikes me as, like, I would love to see a science fiction story about that. <laughs> Like, uh, that's a, that's a great, you know, indecent proposal type scenario where you're a parent and, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of money and maybe this will put your family and yourself on the good track for, for the foreseeable future, but you have to kill your, your three-year-old child. Of course, to the M world, it's not killing because they live in that world. No, but to the parent who's accepting the billion dollars, it most certainly is, right? Well, but, you know, in, to some extent, the child lives on in a way that they might be a major force in the future because of being copied many times and being a major player in this M well, universe. Well, the, 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 the M version of the child is part of the new species that's taking over the world. So they get a shot at relevance that no human would have. So there's definitely an argument on both sides. That's why it's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really great. This is exactly the the kinds of thing that when I was reading the book, like were most exciting to me. Because I approach this stuff from a sort of storytelling point of view. We could continue that story because uh, as soon as the M, this new child shows up in the M world, they'll need to be trained in sort of thinking about things the M ways. And one of the most interesting parts of that is being trained to be somewhat blasé about splitting off copies that don't last very long. Hmm. Oh, yeah, let's definitely get into that because, uh, you know, obviously, as humans, we have these very strong sense of personal identity and right. strong survival instincts. Exactly. But this will be different for him. So uh, take for a human the example of going to a party and then at the beginning of the party taking a drug that means you won't remember that party the next day or ever after. Now, during that party, you might enjoy the extra freedom it provides. Uh, near the end of the party, you probably wouldn't tell yourself, I'm about to die. This is terrible. The creature who I am, you see, at the party is a different creature because this other person I was before won't remember this, and therefore I'm new, and therefore I'm going to die, and, and I'm going to fight, and etc. So that's an attitude you could take. It's logically consistent, but it's probably not what you would take. But in a sense, the, sa- the structure of an M who splits off a copy who lasts for a few hours to do attacks and then is erased is wait, pretty wait, much wait. the same what? structure. Can I, I'm just going to jump in here because this idea of splitting off a copy, I think, needs some explanation, right? You call that spurs in the book? Maybe we right. should pause here and explain that concept first. So uh, at any one time, uh, your brain state is recorded as a computer file, and we could just make a copy of that file and put it in another emulation piece of hardware, and then it could be in a new environment and diverge from you after that point. Um, and you might be in the habit of doing that. So for, for a mainline emulation... Uh, 
if they worked eight hours a day or even 12 hours a day, uh, they need to spend two-thirds of the day or at least one half of the day uh, resting up and doing other things that aren't immediately productive. If you can split a co- off a copy at the beginning of a workday and it only works through the day and then you erase it at the end of the day, well, you know, per hour uh, of, of running an emulation, you get two or three times more work out of it. So it's pretty much an irresistible temptation to do pretty often. Now, you don't remember as much of what it does. You don't learn as much from what it does. But still, a factor of two to three is irresistible. So uh, the prediction is that M's will get used to doing that. They'll get used to being okay with that. And they'll think of it not as uh, another creature who is about to die. They'll think of it as a part of me that I don't remember, just like you might think of yourself at the party, uh, who you don't remember as a part of you as well. But... I, it sounds like you're still describing it from the perspective of someone about to split off, right? What if you realize you're the spur? Well, that's or, you at the party. I mean, you at the party near the end. Uh, you realize you've got another hour left of the party before you, or, or your day before you go to sleep. You realize you tomorrow will not remember this uh, and say there isn't even any video taken of, the, of you at the party. Uh, this memory you have, this experience you just had, will not go on. Uh, is that you about to die or is that just a part of you you won't remember right and i i think you know most humans of today would have a hard time accepting that right but you're again you're saying that you'd have to indoctrinate people somewhat well they would accept it for the party i in fact think most people given a drug at the party means they won't remember it the next day would be fine with it at the end of the party but they i think would not scream death at that point so I, it's about how they frame it but the, i think the difference for a lot of people would be that because there's not multiple versions of you that exist, right? There are. They're just not at the same time. <laughs> this is the key point. So today we are spread across time, but not across space. And we find a way to see ourselves spread across time as all the same part of the same person. But there's a sense of which we're not. Me today isn't me tomorrow or me in 20 years. And so I am, if I'm here today at work, I'm being somewhat exploited by me at night <laughs> tonight because he gets to rest and I'm doing all the work. Well, what's with that? <laughs> but of course, uh, we don't think about it that way. Uh, we, th- we think uh, it's okay for me to work today for myself tonight to enjoy it because we're really the same person. And the M's will think about that the same across space now. Uh, if, they, if you split off several copies at the beginning of the day uh, and one, only one of them goes on to the next night, well, uh, that's still you and you're still working for you. Well, yeah. I mean, I think this what really this gets to for me at the heart is just the fundamental definition of identity once you can make perfect copies. Because, I mean, the reason we don't deal with this as humans today is because we can't do these things. We can't have uh, subjective experiences that happen in the same time and in a different space and then just end. And again, just to be clear, I am not making any claims about the fundamental moral truth of some concepts of identity versus other. I'm just saying... This is a way the emulations can think about it, and there'll be a strong selection and pressure for them to think about it in the way that's more productive. Yeah, and that, that's the the cultural point that I, that I was sort of trying to get at. There is that is that you know a, a human of today, if you propose this to them, they're going to react negatively. Even even if you explain it just like you did, they're not necessarily going to sign up for this type of situation. But regardless of whether it's moral or right or wrong this M world is going to have to find a way to sort of remap their values so that they are, in fact, okay with this. I mean, there are ways that you are okay with your life that your ancestors would have found repulsive as well. Uh, Certainly. And so we uh, have all, in all these different cultures and times and places, uh, adapt to our circumstances and find ways to see our world 
uh, such that we get along and do the things that need to be done. Well, and even with in the narrower field of identity, there is some variation even in our current world on how that's construed. And there are some cultures where uh, one's familial identity is far more valued over one's individual identity. Sure. We obviously come from a Western society where the opposite is true. So it's like very repulsive to my brain to try to imagine me being okay with some copy of myself existing for a little while and then ending and not being reabsorbed into my my consciousness. So part of the fun of, of writing this book and for hopefully many of you reading the book mm-hmm. is it's a chance to see, in a sense, real aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if we ever met real aliens out there, they would be really quite different from us in a great many ways. And we would find it hard to accept uh, their different ways. Uh, and looking across time of different human civilizations, that's in a sense the closest we're really going to get to seeing uh, very different aliens. So the more that you could really understand your very distant ancestors of foraging and farming, the more you would really understand how alien they are. If you read fiction about them, it misleads you. They are stranger than that would lead you to think. And these descendants that I'm describing are also pretty strange. Now, there is still sort of a a version of death, though, in the M world, right? Which would be like if if your particular thread, right? So like you might start with the same human, but you know, once uh, you've gotten specific training and a particular M copy has like diverged enough and had enough experiences. Yeah. And had enough accumulated enough experiences to be sort of a a unique identity. Yeah. They might split off spur copies, but if at any point all copies of that particular uh, identity thread were to go away, that would for M's would still be considered kind of a death, right? It's kind of a death, but it is more of a matter of degree for M's. So for us, it's pretty much an absolute. I mean, we, we feel a little less bad about babies dying because they haven't lived a whole life. And we feel a little less bad about a very old person dying because we figure there's not much other choice. But still, uh, it's all pretty big. But for emulations, uh, there can be pretty close copies still around. So for example, uh, most emulations will have a limited work life before they must retire. So uh, just as today, uh, humans, when they're young, have what's called fluid intelligence, and then when they're old, they have crystallized intelligence, uh, they're better able to learn and adapt when they're young, and older, when they're older, they find it hard to adapt to new circumstances. Because of this, even though M's are in principle immortal, that is, they can last forever if you keep paying to archive and, and maintain them, uh, still, in practice, they will have to retire. Uh, and that means uh, that you know when you start out M's uh, in a work career, they will be around other copies of themselves that are slightly older or slightly younger, that is, that were trained uh, a few years before they were trained, uh, subjectively a few years after. And so they'll know much better than we do what their future is going to be like because they'll sort of see their future in versions of them that are around. So that means if this version were to end, uh, it's not the loss that we might feel because there are so many somewhat similar versions of them around. Let's zoom out a bit and and maybe paint a a visual picture of what the the future actually looks like, right? So so let's say we're flying over Earth uh, during this M era. You know, what kind of changes do we see? You know, how does the landscape differ from today? So we probably wouldn't see that much difference until we looked at one of the few main M cities. So M's will concentrate in a small number of very dense, very active cities. Most of the rest of the Earth will be left untouched because the M's will be so eager to be near these few dense M cities uh, that they won't be very interested in going other places. So humans can 
run the rest of the earth as they wish. On most of the rest of the earth, what you'll see is uh, the various things made by suddenly rich humans. If they had an inkling for a mansion or a yacht or uh, a vast sculpture, then you'll see a few of those things around the earth. You know, it'll take some time to make them. Anything that takes more than a year or two to make, you won't see yet because uh, the era just started a, a few years ago. Otherwise, uh, you'll see humans in retirement. You'll see humans uh, enjoying their retirement, uh, spending the wealth that they're getting out of their investments in the M economy. But if you happen to look upon one of the few dense M cities from out in space, you will, you'll see as a huge cloud. You won't even see the M city really because what these M cities will likely do is they'll be near ice water and they will suck in vast amounts of water full of chunks of ice called an ice slurry. They will pass that ice slurry past enormously hot computer chips you know, kilometers full of them. And uh, at the end, that wa water will come out near steam and above the city will rise enormous clouds of hot air from all of this uh, hot water that comes out of the city. The city itself will probably look relatively utilitarian if you look at it. And uh, it'll have lots of big buildings that hold on to each other in a big three-dimensional structure and, and crammed full of uh, lots of computer hardware and cooling pipes, basically. That's most of what it is. But emulations won't see what you see you see because they're mostly in virtual reality they will make their city look spectacularly beautiful from their point of view and so they will be less interested in making their city look beautiful uh, from an ordinary point of view because they rarely do so that's why you coming in from the outside coming in below these huge clouds finally seeing the m city would see something that looks pretty functional like enormous racks of computer hardware but to them it would be glimmering spires fields of green uh vast flags waving whatever they find beautiful to me the analogy seems like uh these cities might basically just be the further extrapolation of like today's data centers that we have all over the world and they are increasingly building them in cold places to help with uh, the cooling problems that they come up with really focus on raw material physical things close to the city so uh, in an economy that doubles every month or faster it gets ridiculously expensive to ship things around the earth so mm. they wouldn't bother they would trade electronically they would right. trade software and uh, ideas and things but they would get most of their physical input from mines and factories that are really directly adjacent to the city do you see these cities clustering in the colder parts of the earth like around the the poles Again, the, the advantage of taking in cold water seems substantial, but uh, in general, cities just have a lot of uh, path dependence. So one of the initial factors is uh, the very first emulation data centers in cities will probably get an advantage from being near human concentrations. Huh. On the other hand, after a little while, they'll get a disadvantage from being next to the humans because the humans might not like it. Right. I was just thinking they might not prefer to have a giant cloud of uh, cooling waste uh, pouring out over their living area. Right. So that'll be a, a subtle uh, trade-off. So uh, mm -hmm. the successful cities will probably have been close enough to human cities to be useful to them, but far enough away that they can grow rapidly without much uh, limitation on bothering humans. Hmm. Now, M's can move between these cities pretty easily, right? They can just move electronically. So it would just be the, the speed of light delay to just send their bits to one city uh, from the other. As long as there's some kind of communication infrastructure in place, they don't exactly. seem to have a problem. Yeah. Now let's talk about, you know, your average M. And we've kind of touched upon a lot of this, right? But you, you talk about them being workaholics, essentially, working and playing in this virtual reality space. In fact, let's just focus on work, right? Let's talk about the fact that they're, 
they seem to be working constantly, um, you know, with periodic breaks just to keep them and sane. And work seems to be the reason for these things existing on a certain level, right? They're going to explode right. when they have jobs to do. Right. So given that that's, you know, such a big part of their existence, you know, what sort of work do you see them doing? So uh, it's easy to predict that subsistence economies, most of the work is producing the basic required to subsist. Uh, this was true of farming societies a thousand years ago. Most of what a subsistence farmer produced was the basic required to survive, uh, food, shelter, clothes, things like that. So in this new emulation subsistence economy, most of what work produces is the basics required for emulations to exist and survive. They need to make computer hardware. They need to make energy and cooling for that hardware. They need structural support. They need real estate to sit on. They need communication lines. They need repair bots. They need things to move stuff around. Those are the main things required to make this emulation economy function and exist, and that's what most of them are doing. Now, the reason that they have to hustle so much just to survive is because there's just so many of them, right? Exactly. Now, a major assumption that I think we need to just openly discuss here is that they don't you know, coordinate, say, to limit reproduction, because obviously I think individual M's could be better off potentially, right, if they were to limit their numbers. Is that so true? this is just using economics, really. Uh, and it is a sticking point for a lot of people. A lot of people like futurism and discuss futurism in the mode of what would we want the future to be like and uh, how can we promote it and uh, which concept of the future will win out because some of us have different concepts. But that's not how economists actually usually analyze things. When we analyze the world today or the world uh, in another country far away or things were in the past, we don't usually ask what did people want and which concept of their world won out. What we think in terms of is lots of small actors, uh, people and firms, each trying to do what they can to benefit themselves and the net effect of all that producing some overall behavior and often the overall behavior produced by many small actors doing what they can in their self-interest is an outcome that no one would have voted for or chosen. And that's actually been the usual case through most of history. That is, uh, we haven't had much of a world government uh, even in the last century, and before then we had even less. Mostly we have had the result of competition and uh, autonomous technology. So the introduction of new technology has, for most of history, been something that um, no one was in charge of or in control of. Any one person or even country could choose whether or not to try to make more new technology there or whether to let other places do it and gain the benefits and costs. But mostly, if a technology was possible and some people would find it to their advantage, it just happened. And that's still true today. And my simple assumption to make about this future is that it remains true in this future. Now, plausibly over time, we will get slowly get better at world governance and we will be able to govern uh, more kinds of issues and ma ma manage that. But our ability to apply world's governance to issues does depend on some factors. And taking the M economy and vastly reducing its population in order to increase the wages of M's is really quite a difficult achievement, even for a much better world government than we have. Right, because even though it would be in the interest of a lot of these M's to decrease the overall numbers, there's really strong incentives on the other side, right? Driving the creation of more copies and just more productivity overall. 
And you're saying Absolutely. that would be a really tough force to push back against. So if there were some regulation that say said that you had to pay each emulation, say, 10 times what would have been the subsistence wage, that means they only have to work 10% of their time. So a minimum M wage kind of. Right, for example. Right. Uh, you can imagine somebody who has an idea for a small business saying, gee, I'd have a huge competitive advantage over my uh, other businesses in this area if I secretly made thousands of copies of myself and we all worked for cheaper on our business then I could just really outcompete these other folks and uh, make a big splash and you, you can see people who are eager to win in the business competition being willing to do that they're not exploiting or enslaving somebody else they're making a lot of copies of themselves right well since every person is potentially a source for an M Right. That creates really difficult to overcome incentive there for somebody somewhere. You would need global levels of monitoring and enforcement. You would basically need to be able to looking at all computers in the world and seeing what they're all doing all of the time. Which we find that that is a requirement for a great many solutions to problems that people uh, suggest when we talk about various future issues. And we are always a little skeptical of... Uh, future where everyone's on the same OS and everybody's, you know, subjected to complete surveillance like that. Uh, let's, let's talk a bit about, about social structure. Uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book that I think is really interesting is this idea of clans of right. similarly sourced M's. So almost like all of the M's of a particular original uh, might be grouped together. Absolutely. In history, we often used family clans as a basic unit of social organization. So through most traditional farming societies, a family clan was a unit of production, it was a unit of reproduction, it was a unit of law, it was a unit of politics. Uh, often larger units in society were co based on coalitions of families and family clan units. And in the last few centuries, in the last few millennia even, uh, a big change that's happened in the Western world was uh, reducing our reliance on family clans in order to uh, let people focus more on other units of organization. So starting with uh, the Roman Empire and the, and the Catholic Church actually forbidding marrying of cousins and even second cousins, we created uh, an emphasis where people could have more of an allegiance to their firm or their city than they might to their family. And uh, that's allowed a reduction in nepotism such that firms and cities can actually function and even nations can function without uh, you know, normal overwhelming focus on family clans. That's been uh, an advance really in the last few centuries. Mm. Uh, now, the, in the emulation world, uh, copies of the same original human are more like each other and more affiliated not only than members of the same family, but even then identical twins in our world who are famously more like each other and willing to help each other out. So uh, it's a really plausible, strong unit of affiliation. And so that makes it a natural unit for uh, work and finance and law and politics. It's such a natural unit that now the M world has to be concerned again about nepotism, about uh, M's favoring their own clan over others in their city or their job. And so plausibly, what mm. would typically happen is that work teams would be created and each team would only have one member from each clan. And so uh, M's on their work day would not actually typically see other copies of themselves, except when they spin off a copy to do something and get its report just before it's erased. Uh, but typically, they would interact with other M's. 
And that's in part because to do a job, usually you need, a, you know, that a whole team does, you need a number of different kinds of mental styles that work together on a team. So once M's have a team of M's that work together well, what they will then do is when they need more uh, of that sort of uh, work done, they will just copy entire teams. And then uh, entire teams will work together uh, until they're no longer needed, and then an entire team might be erased or retire together. So uh, in this way, M's would uh, be feel very allied to their team members because teams would break up much less than our team. So often when we have a team today, we're wondering and worried that some of our team members will leave our team and go off to some other team. And that happens a lot, and it reduces the sense of allegiance we have to our team. But for M's, that would almost never happen. Once a team is formed, it will just stay together for as long as any of them stay together. Right, because you can just make another copy if one of those well, needs to go. The entire team, yes. Team. And any part of the team, if you want. If they wanted to make a new team out of elements of an old, old teams, so you could just copy the parts as you needed. So that's interesting. So it seems like the team is actually more important than the clan in some ways. In the uh, So it's a competing element, but of course, uh, these are both important. So probably M's would spend more of their their signaling efforts, uh, their efforts to, sh to, to create an explicit identity and to spend time reinforcing it, they would probably do that for their, for their uh, teams, really. So when a new team is created, it might try to create its own sort of new kind of food it likes or music it likes, ways it dresses just to sort of create camaraderie within the team. But M's would still rely on their clans a lot. So many people today, uh, when they were a child, they might have thought they were weird and they might have imagined... Uh, what if there's a whole planet of people like their outlier, like me? And, and that's why I'm weird, is because someday I'll discover the planet of me. Well, for M's, that's really true. <laughs> they really do each come from a planet of people like them. And that planet is always available to, for them. So, in fact, they probably uh, once in a while talk to their clan to get advice. Basically, their clan is ready to them, and it'll tell them sort of advice about what to do in any situation based on the statistics of thousands or even millions of other people just like you in similar situations. Right, right, which right. is totally bizarre to be able to like consult future and past versions of yourself. I mean, it seems like another implication too of the clans is that they would be very concerned with preserving their brand, right? Since yes, of course. They, they need to be hired. Right. So if like any clan member that deviated from what was thought to be uh, clan the, behavior, the appropriate clan behavior, right. I assume would right. be punished for that. Right, so imagine that you are married, you have a spouse, uh, but, and you're on a team, but then out there there are thousands of other copies of you who are basically married to the same spouse <laughs> somewhere else. If you left your spouse, uh, now all of a sudden all those other uh, spouses are wondering uh, if their copy is going to leave them. <laughs> and uh, they'll, of course, exert some pressure on you uh, not to leave uh, so easily if, if this is uh, the fallout for them. Right, right. I, I like the idea that there's like, you know, there's statistics on that. Like, oh, you know, 30% of Fred's leave Betty's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but only 15% of Fred's leave Jane's. There's something like that. Right. So in some sense, you, you <laughs> might be threatened to feel less special and individual. And to the extent that's a problem, M's may just try to not think about all these other copies of themselves, just not see them. So even today, there's a something called many worlds theories of quantum mechanics that says that all of us are embedded in a universe full of billions of other slight variations on us right uh, but but we don't let that you know get in the way of feeling individual because we just don't think about them well also because we have no access to it <laughs> right but even if we did we, we could just not think about them i mean if i could go and shoot up my portal gun at the wall and then go visit right some other world and see the alternate ted i think i'd I'd have to think more about that than I do you, now. You do it sometimes, but really, I mean, people are really quite able to put things out of their mind when they're uncomfortable. Sure, sure. That's interesting. Well, I mean, and, and on the issue of M's being comfortable and happy, it seems to me like 
one could argue based upon all the things you've laid out that the M's would be on average happier and, and more filled than humans today. There was one quote in your book that really stuck out to me that said, um, since most M's remember agreeing to allow the creation of the copy that they are, they feel more grateful than we do to exist and more accept their place in the world. And of course, we've also talked about the effects of selectively copying these certain people that are going to be happy doing a lot of work and that are predisposed to fit into this culture. So is, is that a safe assumption that they're maybe on average happier yeah. than we are? Well, in our world, there actually are people um, out there who resent their existence. Uh, they complain. Uh, nobody asked them to uh, be created. <laughs> and uh, they think their life is not worth living, but they still would be even worse if they killed themselves. And it goes by the word negative utilitarian or antinatalist. And there are many people who think uh, it would just be better off if there were fewer of us or even none of us because mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know we're better off not existing. M's would own their existence in, in a stronger sense. They, Even if their original human couldn't have chosen whether it exists, each new copy will be able to choose. That is, it will remember before the copy was mated that it was okay with this copy being created. That It sort of heard the description of what its life would be like, and it's nodded and said, yeah, that's okay, let's do it. So at this point in the podcast, why don't we swing back to humans, right? Because I, I got to sure. assume that the people listening to this are like, well, what about us? And we've, we've touched upon the humans, the fact that they might have investments that are paying off. They might be living out a retirement for two years. But I mean, there, I feel like there's so many questions, right? Like, so why are the humans allowed to just continue undisturbed, right? I think a lot of people would be concerned that this M civilization dominating the planet would perhaps, I don't know, get rid of the humans or not give them any wealth or allow them to keep the wealth that they feel they're entitled to. So let's maybe start there. You know, why, why don't the M's just take what the humans have? Well, at the most basic point, let's start with this division between M's and humans. So when you look ahead to this future and you imagine that you or your children might live there, you might be tempted to see the humans as the you and the M's as the them. But you should pause for a moment and realize you could see the M's as you as well. That is, all of the M's come from humans originally. Uh, that is another path of descendants. And you could decide that there's going to be a new world and you want to be a successful part of it. You want to at least take a chance of joining the M world and uh, putting your hand in the competition and seeing how well you might do. So you could see the humans on the margin as your descendants or you could see the M's as your descendants. It's a choice. Hundreds of years ago, when the Industrial Revolution was beginning, uh, people who were farmers living in a farming world, they could have encouraged their children to stay farmers and stay away from those strange industrialists, or they could encourage their children to move to the city and learn new ways and become part of the new industrial economy. When that happens, they might become a little more different and harder to understand and relate to and even harder to visit, but they still might prefer that their children have a more successful future to be part of the more successful part of the world that's uh, going to be created. And in this M revolution, uh, people could think about the M world in that way too, that they want their children to be successful and they might want their children to move over to this world and take a shot at it. So, uh, of course, around us in the world today, we still have subsistence farmers and we still even have some subsistence foragers out there. So uh, that's one reason to plausibly believe that the uh, emulation world would still have some human industrialists out there because uh, they may not care about it. So 
we are not on any sort of tear to exterminate the farmers and foragers that are still in our world. Uh, we don't care enough about them to bother us as long as they find a place and, and don't bother us. Uh, well, there was certainly a, a period, though, of, of uh, pretty intensive efforts to do that, and it was relatively successful, was it not? I mean, uh, when industrial societies needed land to expand, they didn't hesitate to exterminate pretty large swaths of the farming. Right, although the societies that were expanding included both farmers and foragers. So it was more about True. some societies competing with others than really farmers competing with industrialists per se. True. And so True. Similarly, if the M's want some real estate, uh, if there's things they want, uh, they will probably just get them. They can pay for them as well as fighting for them. Mm. Uh, but for the things that the M's don't care about, uh, they could plausibly leave the humans alone. Uh, now, we could, basically, humans retire in this scenario. Uh, they can no longer work, but they have some investments. They own some things in the emulation economy. And since the emulation economy may double every month, their investments may double every month. So in that way, humans could very quickly get rich, at least in total. Now, whether any one human has enough to live on depends on how well humans share and ensure this wealth that they collectively have. So... Uh, the obvious prediction there is this will vary from place to place, just as it has in the past. In some places, they will share well enough so that pretty much everyone does okay, and in other places, they won't. Uh, now, you might ask, why should the emulations allow the humans to retire? What's in it for them? Uh, but today, we actually have retirees in our world, and we could say, why do we allow these retirees to exist? Why don't we kill them and take their stuff? Uh, then the rest of us will be richer. But we, we don't say that. <laughs> Uh, and not just because some of us know retired people we care about. Uh, I think it's also because uh, they share institutions with us. We share legal and political and financial institutions. And uh, proposing that we kill them and take all their stuff would be a substantial threat to the stability of these institutions. That would require uh, a lot of change and a lot of uh, disruption. And then as, if, even if we succeeded at that, uh, a lot of the rest of us would wonder who's next. <laughs> Once we're in the habit of deciding there's some of us we can kill off and take their stuff, uh, why stop with the retirees? Right. So, you know, at a certain point, if the M's were to decide to just take the wealth that the humans have, then that's threatening the actual underlying institutions that, you know, might guarantee that M's get to keep their own wealth, right? Is that what you're saying? It also threatens the M retirees. So uh, M's will probably retire to a much slower speed than they work at because that's much cheaper. And plausibly, that would be comparable to the speeds of humans. And so humans and emulations both now have a common cause in allowing retirees to keep their stuff and also in just keeping the stability of the M civilization. So I would really be worried less about whether or not the M's let humans live during this two years than what happens next. Okay, well, so let's go there. My, what happens next? Well, my book is not about what happens I next. I know. And and honestly, I think I'm pretty ambitious in just to describe the next era that's as different from ours as the farming and foraging eras. And I, I kind of resent it that I did the implication that I haven't done enough by <laughs> not describing the era that follows or the trillion years of the universe that go after that. I mean, you should expect that at some point it gets harder. Now. Sure. No, and I think the book's scope is, uh, is actually quite monumental. But on this podcast, we like to, especially toward the end, once we've covered a topic, really just take things as far as we can and get into wild speculative territory. So I'm going to push you there a little bit and okay. say like, you know, what, 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 let's say this goes through and we have this subjective thousands of years and, you know, objective two or three years where, you know, the economy's doubling every month or something like that. What could we expect weekly to, to happen next? So we talked about that earlier. One plausible scenario is that slowly we accumulate better software that isn't 
M's, it's the software we write and can understand at least line by line. Mm -hmm. And that eventually becomes good enough that it can be more efficient than M's at pretty much all tasks. And so this would be a more traditional AI revolution. So it's a bridge to like AGI or something like that. Right. Right. So that plausibly would happen on the time scale that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's, if it did happen, it plausibly would greatly change society again. Uh, and so that is a plausible scenario, but I wouldn't say much stronger than plausible uh, because again, uh, there's just so many things we don't understand and haven't thought through about what could happen next. Uh, on the very longer time scales, I, I think th there's a few obvious things to say. Growth rates have been increasing, so the M economy is faster than ours, and plausibly what happens even after the M's could be even faster. But it's really obvious that on, a, on cosmological timescales, this increasing sequence of growth modes must come to an end. <laughs> growth can't just keep accelerating, and then it will start to slow down. We don't know when exactly it will start to slow down, but plausibly it will start to slow down when the Earth is full or the solar system is full. Basically, you can't keep expanding rapidly exponentially uh, when you run out of stuff in the Earth or the solar system. And uh, then from that point on, growth will have to be a lot slower. Now, it could still be fast on a cosmological timescale. We could take over the uh, galaxy in a million years or something. But it would still be much slower than we've been talking about for the M era or even from our era. Right. Uh, and so we can foresee plausibly a future where growth is slow. It's also plausible that in this future of slow growth, they will have spectacularly advanced control over matter. <laughs> and uh, they will just be far more efficiently implemented than we humans are. They will have basically taken apart the Earth or the solar system into whatever can most efficiently produce you know, useful computation, be that emulations or something else. So you have to imagine, you know, an Earth or a solar system maximally devoted to efficient production and competition and then growing very slowly. Hard, hard to imagine. It is hard to imagine. I wouldn't try to give it that much more detail. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, thank you for taking us on that journey. Um, <laughs> I do want to go one more place, a little more mundane before we totally finish today and actually go like rewind all the way to the present and now ask you, Robin Hansen, living today in... 2016, given how much thinking about the future you've done, does any of this affect how you live your life now and how you plan? Well, and also this timeline is, you know, within the next century, but it's possible it could happen within our lifetimes. So right. maybe granting for a moment the idea that maybe it will happen within our lifetimes, even if that's not totally plausible, if that were the case, how would you prepare for it? How would it change what you do now? So there's things we each individually can do, and then there's things we can collectively do. Mm -hmm. So individually, we should each try to make sure that we and our children have some other source of income besides our ability to earn wages. Uh, try to make sure you save uh, stocks, real estate, other sorts of things. Uh, that's a uh, reasonable insurance against the possibility of this all of a sudden showing up without a preparation or warning. Uh, if you have children or younger children, you might hope that they could be successful in this new world. You will want to uh, instill in them the sort of values that might be uh, useful in this new world. So they shouldn't sort of assume that the world will continue to get rich and be comfortable and that they should uh, just have high expectations and, and feel entitled to a lot. <laughs> they should uh, try to imagine uh, what it would take to compete well in a world like this and uh, be ready for that sort of attitude and style. Be flexible about how the world might change and be willing to live in, and struggle in a world that isn't easy. Um, that would be the sort of thing that you 
or your children more likely would uh, need to have as attitudes and styles uh, in order to be successful in this new world. Collectively, we might realize that you can study the future. <laughs> that if you break the future down by scenarios and go one by one, you can take each scenario and, and get quite a ways into analyzing its consequences. And maybe we should do this for a lot more scenarios and be able to envision the future in some more detail. Uh, in order to figure out which scenario is more likely, perhaps we should just have betting markets and uh, set them up and find out what the betting markets say about which scenario is more likely, and then we could prioritize our analysis by uh, which scenarios were more likely. These are also plausible things we could do. I think collectively we should also realize we should just probably not be too smug about thinking that our culture is the epitome of all of history and that uh, the future will just be more like us. Uh, <laughs> well, that's definitely we, difficult to do, but it sounds like good advice. <laughs> so, so in fact, over the last few centuries, we have roughly a liberal trend. That is, you can think of a trend of moving away from more conservative to liberal values. And you can think of that as roughly moving from a farming kind of culture back toward a forager kind of culture and values. And many people are proud of that and, and happy uh, to see that trend. Uh, but in this scenario, that trend reverses. And so we should at least be ready for the possibility that the future will be uh, back to more farmer sort of conservative values, uh, not the continuation of current trends. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Robin. So thank you so much for, for having it with us. And before we let you go, um, why don't you tell our listeners how they can get, uh, how and when they can get the book? So the book is The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth, available from most booksellers near you. It actually ships at the moment if you uh, order it online. It, uh, electronic versions will be available uh, May 26th. Uh, and you can find more details out at various websites, including my own site, ageofm.com. Uh, thanks again for being with us today, Robin. We're going to let you go now. Thanks so much, Ted and John. So that is that wraps up our uh, interview with Robin Hansen about the age of M. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed doing it. And we've been trying to get Robin on the show for some time now, so we're very excited about this one. Uh, you probably have noticed that we have been on a relatively long unofficial hiatus this year. Uh, we knew we were going to be taking a bit of a break, but it ended up being longer than expected. Uh, but we are back now and we have some new ideas for how to get more content to you. So keep tuned to this space and you will be seeing uh, some new experimental uh, episode types in the near future. Yeah. At this point, I don't think we want to make any, you know, announcements or claims about schedule that we might end up breaking, but I just want to stress that we are back. The podcast is not dead. Some people have guessed that. Uh, so expect more episodes at some point. Yeah. And we want to thank everybody who's written to us in the meantime and asked, you know, uh, how we were doing. Uh, we appreciate that. Um, and uh, we appreciate that, uh, you know, you guys are stuck with us. So thanks very much. We will see you all very soon. Thank you. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>